Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. This week you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and with me is Phoebe Watson. Hi guys! And we're both really excited this week because we're actually doing a topic that we've kind of been teasing for a little while, which is that Phoebe has finished The Once and Future King and we have a big need to talk about it. I think we may have mentioned this book in every podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty likely, actually, yeah. Pretty close, anyway. Um, It's been occupying both of our minds. So I think we're very excited to dive into it. The topic of this podcast is going to be specifically about chivalry, although I will say that anyone who wants to read The Once and Future King, there is more to it than just the kind of chivalric elements. Um, I think we're pretty much going to be talking about the second half of the book. Yeah, there's four books in it, although five if you count the Book of Merlin. Isn't that it? I didn't count the books. (laughs) It's split into The Sword and the Stone, The Queen of Air and Darkness, The Ill-Made Knight, and The Candle in the Wind. And there's actually also another book which was released after the author T.H. White's death called The Book of Merlin, which I have not actually read yet. So that's... There's There's another book? I know. (laughs) Very exciting. I didn't really like The Queen of Air and Darkness. I'll put it that way. But The Sword and the Stone, I think, was my favourite. Yeah. I think people will be most familiar with it because there is a Disney version and it's the second with King Arthur as like a young boy. So it's a it's a rewriting of the Arthur myth by T.H. White, which was done over the kind of late 1930s to 1940s and was released in 1958. But before we get too kind of entrenched in the actual book, I thought it would be helpful if we did like a little bit of a background on chivalry and courtly romances and I think we're also going to give a quick overview of the Arthurian legend, because that was something that I didn't really know. Yeah, I I learned about it in university when I studied medieval romance, but I actually, yeah, I didn't know most of it beforehand. But yeah, we will give a disclaimer. Uh, We're going to try and not spoil some of the maybe the points that are specific to the once and future king, but we will be talking about the Arthurian myth generally. So if you would rather not uh, have that spoiled, if you don't know anything about it yet, that's fine. Um, but but knowing it doesn't spoil the book. No. Uh, tellingly, this is based on a book called Le Mort d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory, which in the French title translated to English is just The Death of Arthur. So that kind of spoils the ending <laughs> before you get anywhere. Um, this was a pretty common thing in medieval stories. It means the life and death of Arthur. So it means it's his whole life. So the, yeah, the things that we were going to talk about were just some of the background to chivalry. Um, we're not going to go too deeply into the the historical realities of uh, knights and the different orders and the Uh, particularly because it's all caught up in the Crusades, which would also make a very interesting topic in and of itself. But what we will do is just give, there's an excellent quote by Bernard of Clairvaux, which describes what he sees as the kind of ideal knights around him. So Bernard of Clairvaux was a French abbot. And so the medieval idea of knights and courtly behaviour comes from France. And specifically chivalric codes of conduct were originated in France to curb uh, Frankish violence at the time. It began in the 10th century and went on to the 1400s. Uh, That was the end of that era. But it began out of a need to curb violence in society. And so Bernard of Clairvaux was one of the leading figures in the reform of Benedictine monasticism. So he was on the more spiritual side of things, but it was this renewal of appropriate behaviour at the time. He's 11th century, yeah? Yes. So it's in De Laude Nove Militiae. I definitely can't pronounce that right. A brief account of the life and ways of Christ's knights, of how they conduct themselves in battle and at home, of how they behave in public, and how greatly Christ's chivalry and the usual sort differ from one another. First, Christ's knights have discipline and never disdain obedience. For as scripture attests, the undisciplined son will perish. Restiveness is as the sin of witchcraft, and the refusal to acquiesce is like the crime of idolatry. They are wary of all excesses in food and dress. They concern themselves only with necessities. They have a joyous and sober life in their community. You could say that all their multitude has but one heart and one spirit. To such an extent does each of them strive not to fulfil his private desires, but rather to obey his master. 
When the battle is at hand, they arm themselves with faith within and steel without, rather than with gold, so that when armed rather than prettified, they instill fear in their adversaries rather than incite their greed. They attend to battle rather than display, to victory rather than glory, and concern themselves to inspire fear rather than wonder. They are not unstable or impetuous, and they do not behave as if driven headlong by heedlessness. Rather, they order themselves and dispose of their forces for battle considerately, and with every caution and provision, as we read that the fathers did. So I think, honestly, that actually challenges some conceived notions of knights and courtly behaviour, because certainly the images that we see are all very prettified and very much of uh inspiring wonder and glory but I think we'll see as we look at the stories how that represents the devolution of the original ideals. Yeah there's a fascinating bit in The Once and Future King where he's talking about different types of armour mm-hmm. um, and like different swirls and also different sneaky techniques to capture or like glide off the point of the lance Yeah. so that it breaks rather than knocking the person off their horse Yeah. Um, and that's in some ways a very sneaky attack of like how they design their helmets and yeah. like the different swirl. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not actually about who's the fastest, who's yeah. the strongest, who's the best agility. Yeah, it is tactical. Mm. Yeah, no, I I think it's really interesting, and I think the Once a Future King and even Lamour d'Artaire is about unraveling the notions people have about what it means to be a knight and what it means to be chivalrous and all of those things. Um, so just to to lead into it a little bit, the Lamour d'Artaire is. In English literature, the epitome of the court and the courtly romance. And again, if you remember back when I was talking about monsters and romanticism, when we say romance here, well, in this case, we are actually talking about um, love affairs because they are, they are included. Romance actually is more just about a story and usually a story of adventure. Uh, so just uh, it's not necessarily about the kind of interpersonal relationships. Um, but yes, so Le Mordartaire is one of the kind of definitive tellings of the life of Arthur. Now, there are lots of different ones. It's not the only one, but it is the go-to or the the standard text for it. If you're looking for like a French version, because obviously, like I said, all of these medieval ideas come out of France. Their epitome is, is actually in a figure called Roland and the Song of Roland. And so I'd love to take some time to look at that at another time. But we're going to focus on Arthur. So this this whole podcast is going to be about the Arthurian myth. And specifically, so uh, Le Mort d'Arthur chronicles Arthur's life from when he's a boy, when he pulls the sword from the stone, when he gains power and then he founds the round table and he it also covers the quest for the holy grail in which all the knights go off to try and find the holy grail there's also a, a lot of elements in it that some of them are put aside in the once future king because it's very long they have the whole episode of tristan and his old which is one of those famous tragic love stories um and there's other elements in it as well but you also have the Probably the more famous to the Arthurian myth is the the kind of love triangle between King Arthur, his wife Guinevere, and his best knight, Lancelot. And uh, how all of their own personal failings and how the sort of the hand of fate comes in to bring the end of both the life of Arthur and of the Round Table and why we don't have the Round Table anymore. Um, the Once a Future King is in some ways a relatively close retelling of it, but in T.H. White's unbelievably astute and beautiful style, he has a real eye for nature and landscape, but also of introspection and psychology. Yeah, and I think when you say landscape, also people. Yeah. In terms of he never leaves the people out of the landscape and talks about the trees. Yeah, they're always like interconnected. And it's really, it's, I, I do, I, I studied Lamour d'Arterre when I was at university and I do really enjoy it. It is, as most medieval texts are, quite heavy. There's a lot of names, there's a lot of lists, but it is still surprisingly readable. It's in a readable style. It's not quite like Beowulf, it's not in poetry, it is prose. But the Once Future King kind of, for me, takes it to the next level and gives the characters... There, there is a surprising amount of character development in the original medieval text, but this, this goes way beyond that and gives us a really, really complex look at the characters and how they, their own ambitions to be good can cause them to falter. So 
Absolutely. On that, I think I'm just going to add the disclaimer that I love this book, but it is still quite a difficult read. It's not something (laughs) that you just pick up and fly through. I'm quite a fast reader, and this took me months. Yeah, I was surprised, because I felt really self-conscious, because... I, I'm quite a slow reader actually and I had taken months to read it and I was like oh I'm gonna give this to Phoebe and she'll have it read in like four weeks straight and uh, I was coming back to her like a month two months later and I was like you finished you finished you finished <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah so it, yeah it's yeah. it's definitely one to expect to take slow and it is one to actually take slow it yeah is. I mean there were times when I'd read half an hour of it and then I'd be like I can't I can't take this anymore <laughs> like I have to read something else for a while uh, and so what we're looking at is the notions of chivalry. So when we say chivalry, like we said, there's a lot of misconceptions and there's an idea that it's all, even even specifically about King Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot, we don't really think of them as like faulted or broken characters. It very much gets painted up with like an airy fairy brush. Mm-hmm. The thing that I always come back to is the fact that when JFK was president that they were calling it Camelot and like it was a resurgence of a new and glamorous time when everything was great and beautiful and high high ideals and actually you know it, that wasn't really the reality and he was having lots of affairs and things like that and you're like well weirdly that that is also Camelot um, it's just that it's not the Camelot that people have in their minds. Now that we're talking about it what's actually fascinating is that even in this book Mm-hmm. T.H. White portrays the normal people when, like, 20 years into the round table, if they see King Arthur, he's not a person, he's England. Um, yeah, for whom Lancelot was a hero of a hundred victories and Guinevere the romantic mistress of a nation. To these young people, a sight of Arthur as he hunted in the greenwood was like seeing the idea of royalty. They saw no man at all. When Lancelot rode by laughing at some private joke with the Queen, the commonality were amazed that he could laugh. Look, they would say to each other, he is laughing as if he were a vulgar person like ourselves. How condescending, how splendidly democratic of Sir Lancelot to laugh as if he were an ordinary man. Perhaps he eats and drinks as well, or even sleeps at night. But but in their hearts, the new generation was quite sure that the great Dulac did no such thing. It's fabulous. Yeah, so even within the story, yeah. there is that, like, that they're untouchable, that they don't have these kind of faults, that they don't even eat or sleep or drink, and, and that that's not the reality of the story at all. So Yeah, the story is far more how good people can make bad decisions and mm-hmm. keep making bad decisions. Yeah, and how, so the, the principles of chivalry are, are typically to um, uphold and defend the weak, both in the form of, of ladies, which is where you get the whole like giving the ladies giving them a token and them fighting on behalf of ladies and saving damsels in distress and that whole kind of trope, but also even the commonality. So uh, we're going to see how Arthur was trying to establish a state where the ordinary people were not tyrannized by their lords and were not oppressed and beaten and physically beaten down. In terms of defending the weak, also they spend a lot of time rescuing each other. Yes. Like, yeah. that's one of the things I hadn't expected, that yeah. it's also a lot of knights rescuing other knights. Yeah, so there is that, it's that code of conduct, it's that integrity, it's the, it's your word. And the, another thing that we see cause real problems is that, like, once you say something out loud, you are bound to that. It is your honour. If you say, I will have vengeance on this person, you have to then go and do it. And you're not allowed back down and you're not allowed to say, well, circumstances have changed. I've changed my mind. That you are locked into this. So if you say it, you have to take your word very seriously. So there is this whole idea of integrity and honour and duty and fealty to your lord as well. In a strange sense of a lack of mercy in that. That's exactly what I was going to say, yeah. In that there is mercy to others. Mm -hmm. Like, it's perfectly acceptable for someone swearing vengeance to Mm -hmm. go and beat someone in a duel and then not kill him. Yes. But there's no mercy on the self. Yeah. Like, to go, oh, I was actually really angry and wrong. Yes, that is completely true. And because the thing I was saying is that there is a beautifulness to the ideals, but that the brokenness of human nature puts those ideals in a real, like puts the, them in tension and puts people in really difficult positions. And that what is missing is that level of mercy and that ability to accept when you're wrong or even when you've just changed your mind. Like, this has gone on long enough. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, yeah there's no backing out. 
No, and you're really locked into it. And there, there is both in Le Mort d'Arter and in this, there is this sense that as the end of the book comes, that everyone is locked into these motions that they've set in place for themselves that they can't seem to get out of. Lancelot has to go to Guinevere or else she, he's insulting her. The, the people trying to bring him down have to go after him because they've said they're going to bring him down. The people who are swearing vengeance on other people have to go after them and cause this enormous war because... They, uh, because they said that that's what they're going to do, and that they and all... they didn't say that that's what they were going to do in that particular circumstance. Yeah, they said that as a generality. Yeah, and then when it comes up, they can't go. Oh, but I don't want to. And there is a few moments of grace at the most crucial points where people say, "I was wrong," and in some ways it's too late. But in terms of like on a personal level, there is that moment of redemption and grace where you say, "I was wrong. Please, please forgive me." But for the two main characters that we're going to be talking about, Arthur and Lancelot, they both fall short of the chivalric ideals in two different ways. Because the chivalric ideals do put in place, and as we saw with the quote from Bernard of Clairvaux, he's obviously a religious figure, but while the knights are secular, and it's a secular vocation, there is a very religious element to it. And they all, it talks a lot about them getting shriven or getting their confession before battle and things like that, that there is this need for God to be a part of it but the problem I love that moment in when they're te- people are telling their stories of their quest for the Holy Grail mm-hmm. and one of the ones who has failed is talking about his brother Knight who says well he went to confession first and I think that's where the rest of us went wrong yeah there is that how being a good knight means having God's favor and having God's favor means not having sinned and not having put yourself at a distance from God and there's this it's really fascinating how it shows the distance that you can put yourself between you and God through sin, which obviously in regular life doesn't necessarily show up in really obvious ways, but in these stories it really does. So the two ways that they both fail because they don't prioritise God as the highest. They both recognise this. This isn't just our Catholic view, that this is actually in the books, that Arthur fails because he prioritises the state. And he his whole character arc is how he's trying to establish a society and a good society and a society in which violence against others isn't encouraged and a society that is good and kind and compassionate and he is doing everything he can to try and create the society but yeah do you want yeah. to get the quote should we talk that? about that moment where um he kind of realizes the failings of his society yeah so, so he grows up under the tutelage of merlin and in the beginning in the first book with the sword and the stone it all seems fairly benign like he's learning like nice lessons from animals and things like that beautiful but then as he gets older and as he gains the throne then the lessons start becoming more difficult yeah and for reference there's a hilarious moment in the first book where two knights are jousting, Mm -hmm. and they're just going at each other all day, and the worst they get is like a dizzying knock to the head. Yeah. And if one of them falls down, the other waits for him to get up again, and... There's just no end. Yeah, there's no end, and there's no point to it, and they're just going round in circles, and there's no danger either, because they're both so encased in steel. Yeah. Like, the, like I said, the most they're going to get is a dizzying blow to the head, and that's what's going to mm-hmm. put them out of action. So this is after, like, one of Arthur's battles, and he says, It was a good battle, so I recollect. Well, it was a good battle, he, Arthur repeated defensively. It was a jolly good battle, and I won it myself, and it was fun. Very clever, repeated Merlin. How many of your kerns were killed? I don't remember. No. The king stopped in the middle of the sentence and looked at him. Well, he said, it was not fun then. I had not thought. The tally was more than seven hundred. They were all kerns, of course. None of the knights were injured, except the one who broke his leg falling off a horse. What is all this chivalry anyway? It simply means being rich enough to have a castle and a suit of armour, and then, when you have them, you make the Saxon people do as you like. The only risk you run is getting a few bruises if you happen to come across another knight. Look at that tilt you saw between Pelinor and Grumor when you were small. It is the armour that does it. All the barons can slice the poor people about as much as they want, and it is a day's work to hurt each other, and the result is that the country is devastated. Might is right. That's the motto. Yeah. 
And that's a huge lesson for Arthur. He never makes that mistake again. And he, in some ways, pulls himself apart trying to avoid that, which is in the book at that time. And even actually in history as well, that it was, oh, it was jolly good fun. All the knights had a bit of a go and they had, and they got to fight each other. But there were all of these kerns of these peasants who were just slaughtered. That doesn't count. That doesn't matter. And the, the phrase might is right is throughout the novel and it's really interesting because that's what Arthur is trying to steer away from. It's the idea that just because you can use your power doesn't make it right for you to use your power. Yeah, and that's one of the things I find fascinating about this book compared to some of the other like fantasy novels set in like a medieval era with knights in armour, mm -hmm. that those books tend to leave out the peasants. Yeah. They generally forget that a knight was often surrounded by a load of peasants who got killed. Yeah, uh, and I think it's so interesting. And I think we'll come back to Arthur because he's actually the more complex in terms of his uh, relationship with chivalry. Because in some ways you can see establishing the, the state as an objective good, not just for himself, but for lots of people. But that doesn't mean he's not failing in some way. And also in some ways he's bound by his throne mm -hmm. to not be allowed to be as chivalrous as he wants to be. Yeah. Like... I find it fascinating that he's not allowed to fight for Guinevere. Yeah, because he's getting in the way. And it's the justice, because he, he instigates a system of justice, which by the end of the book, he is actually creating into the court system. That, like, it's moving away from jousts and battles, and he's trying to say, no, let's talk it through. Let's have this system where you can come up and say your piece, and this person can say their yeah. piece. But even when it is that jousts and battle system... Yes. He's not allowed to fight for his own wife. Because he is the arbiter of justice, he can't be part of the justice system. He just has to be separate from it. So, yeah. yeah. And that's what gets the other two into so much trouble because then there's this love story between Guinevere and Lancelot that they're having this affair. And also another element of it that we kind of forget is that King Arthur... First of all, I mean, he knows about it because it becomes obvious over time. But he initially knows about it because Merlin prophesied it. Mm. And he decides to put that out of his mind. Yeah, in some ways he always knows about it mm -hmm. and never acknowledges it. Yeah, he would just rather not deal with it. But that's so tied in with the fact that because if he did know what was happening he would have to enact justice because that's a treason against the state. Yeah, and there's these heartbreaking moments where you wonder whether he knows about it and is hiding from it, mm -hmm. or whether he knows about it and kind of is giving them his permission anyway. Or there is a quote which is that it's talking about, T.H. White says that guilty people always have to attack and people with a clear conscience are able to stand back. And he says he felt if he could just give Lancelot and Guinevere the time to kind of come forward and come out of it themselves, then everything would come right. So in some ways, it's not that he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's almost like he's giving them the time to come through their senses and not put him in this position where he has to step in. But because he loves both of them, he does really feel for both of them. In a way, yeah, there is when you're reading it, there is almost a part of Arthur that's kind of rooting for them. Yeah, like especially we see that when um, Guinevere is in trouble and it's Lancelot who has to come and rescue her. Yeah. And he's there waiting with his heart in his mouth, trusting that Lance will come. It's Beautiful. so good. Yeah. And so the Lancelot... It, I was just, sorry, what you were saying about a love triangle, I was thinking in some ways it's the most, it's one of the only true love triangles I've read in that mm -hmm. each one of them is in love with both of the others. Yes, yeah. And that they have this real genuine love for all three people. It's amazing. So Lancelot in this, there is actually a change with Lancelot in this story. Um, T.H. White makes him ugly, which he's not in, it. I think, any of the other stories. He's described as a, a really ugly figure who is raised up to a hero because he is so good. He is so good at being a knight, but he's also seen as just like the best of them. And he has this obsession since childhood with being near the best and aspiring to the best and loving the best that you know he loves Arthur because he's the best king and in a way he loves Guinevere because she's the best woman as well although there's this really interesting thing because when he first comes to the court he sees Guinevere as a rival to King Arthur's attention but it's only when he sees her as a real person he is mean about something to her they're out with his his hawk and she's helping him with his string and he kind of snaps at her and it's only when he sees that he's hurt her and then he realizes that she's a, a real and a living and a thinking feeling person that he starts to fall for her. Are we going to read that quote? Yeah I've got the quote here. There is a moment in which everything stood still 
Guinevere stood, hurt in her heart. Lancelot, sensing her stillness, stood also. The hawks stopped baiting and the leaves did not rustle. The young man knew, in this moment, that he had hurt a real person of his own age. He saw in her eyes that she thought he was hateful and that he had surprised her badly. She had been giving kindness and he had returned it with unkindness. But the main thing was that she was a real person. She was not a minx, not deceitful, not designing and heartless. She was pretty Jenny who could think and feel. Yeah, that term Jenny comes back so often that whenever Lancelot has been away and in some sense has tried to break off the relationship, Mm -hmm. he can succeed so long as he only sees Guinevere. Yeah. And then when he thinks of her as Jenny again. It's that personal. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And it, it is so personal and so, like, heartbreakingly personal in a way. Absolutely. And I think it's telling because when we're introduced to Lancelot, we're given his whole like childhood and how being a knight, being the strongest, being the best is the most important thing to him. It's the only thing he does for his whole life up until that point is train to be a knight. Yeah, it's... like there's this beautiful, heartbreaking bit where they're comparing the childhoods of Arthur and Lancelot. Mm-hmm. And it's something like Arthur would have known the name of the bird mm-hmm. because he had a childhood that was fun and full of love. Whereas Lancelot gave up all of that to become the best knight. Yeah. But in some way, in giving up all of that, he damaged himself in a way that he couldn't become the best. Yeah, that is completely true. And like, it's so tragic and it's so heartbreaking when you're reading it because he, like we were saying, the really interesting thing about the religious element and the God element in all of this is that there is a kind of element where he has the strength of 10 men because he is faultless or he hasn't sinned or he isn't doing anything bad. So he has this miraculous strength, which he loses because he is... initially not actually to Guinevere that's the really interesting thing he he is tricked into like sleeping with Elaine isn't it and that's the first instance and that's when he loses all of his strength and once he's lost it he immediately goes to Guinevere and yeah it's does he actually lose his strength though or is he just really angry that he's lost his virtue I think he says that he's lost his strength yeah I'm pretty sure yeah but he still doesn't lose battles. No, he's still the strongest. Yeah, he's still the strongest. But he I think he loses some of his like miraculous strength. Yeah. Because you do hear about him getting beaten up at this point. Like he doesn't lose but he gets like thrown around a good bit. Yeah. And so he he kind of loses everything to Guinevere because he I don't know, but you kind of suspect that if he didn't continue this relationship with Guinevere that maybe he could regain it I'm not sure Uh, and that's the other thing because knights can do miracles if they are in this state of grace so there's this incredible quote where he says Jenny all my life I had wanted to do miracles I have wanted to be holy I suppose it was ambition or pride or some other unworthy thing it was not enough for me to conquer the world I wanted to conquer heaven too I was so grasping that it was not enough to be the strongest knight I had to be the best as well And in some ways, this need to be the best also locks him into his relationship with Guinevere because there is certainly, there's a big element where he doesn't want to leave her because it'll hurt her. And he hates that feeling because he he does leave at various times to go on crusades or just to get away and like separate himself from this. And ultimately, he just kind of can't bear the fact that she is so hurt by him. But there is also an element where he can't bring himself to see his relationship as less than good, that... I think that's a really big part of it, that he really struggles to see the evil in what he's doing because of the beauty of what he's doing. Yeah, and there's this there's this one section where King Arthur is away for a while, so they the two of them get to spend, I think it's a whole year together. And, and that's even when Arthur has, I think, I think he's gone off fighting in France, mm-hmm. and he's deliberately left Lancelot with Guinevere to protect her. He's like, I don't want to leave her alone. Yeah. And at this stage, I think they're not sleeping together before that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I think mm-hmm. it's when he does that and you're like, can <sighs> you not save them from themselves? Yeah. I think that's the part where it references where it says, uh, Lancelot and Guinevere were together for 24 years, but only the first of them felt like happiness. Yeah. And it comes back. So the, the quote is when Arthur returned. In the king's absence, he had been able to drown himself in the passing minute. But Arthur was perpetually at his elbow now, as a comment on his treachery. 
He had not buried his love for Arthur in his passion for Guinevere, but still felt for him, to a medieval nature like Lancelot's, with its fatal weakness for loving the highest when he saw it. This was a position of pain. He cannot bear to be made to feel that his sentiment for Guinevere was ignoble. The hasty moments together, the locked doors and the base contrivances, the guilty manoeuvres which the husband's presence forced on the lovers, had the effect of soiling what had no excuse unless it was beautiful. So there is that, like, because there's such a focus on the best and the highest and the most beautiful, there is an inability to actually separate yourself and say, like, maybe I'm, I have a fault here or maybe I'm doing something wrong. Um, I think he knows it, but he feels like he'll have betrayed himself so badly if he's allowed himself to be so caught up in something so base. As yeah, it says. I think that ties back into what we were saying about the rules of chivalry at the beginning, mm-hmm. that they can't... Because they're called to such a high ideal, they almost can't bear to see where they've fallen. Mm-hmm. Because that means they've betrayed the the ideal completely. Yeah, there's only the ones that see where you can betray the ideal and then be forgiven and go back to the ideal. Like, that's yeah. not supposed to work, but the ideal itself doesn't let them do that. Yeah, and, and so you can see it sometimes that it works in, like when he's going on the quest for the Holy Grail, that he does get confession. And in that moment, he is free from all of those past habits. And it helps that he's away from the court of King Arthur and Guinevere. But then when he comes back, he's back in the old habits. And I think it's, is it after all of that where he has his miracle, which is, I think, my favourite part of the story. So Lancelot, when you're reading him initially going out on quests, there's a whole lot of discussion over like when he's going to be able to do his miracle as a knight, where he's the good knight, so he's going to be able to do a miracle. And it never. And then there's the false miracle yeah. of him rescuing Elaine. Yes, so he rescues Elaine, and Elaine is the one who tricks him into sleeping with her. And the, she has a son called Galahad through him. And it's so funny because I was thinking of what Lancelot gives up in order to have Guinevere. And so he gives up his strength. He gives up his ability to do miracles. And he, in a way, he also gives up his son. Like he doesn't spend time with his son growing up. Yeah, like Lancelot is never really Galahad's father in a real yeah. sense. Yeah. Though he does spend that time with Elaine. He does, yeah. Yeah. There is a kind of back and forth, but in some ways he gives up the rightful admission of some of that. Yeah. Because it's so complicated with Guinevere and because he's, even though their relationship is secret, the fact that Lancelot is Guinevere's knight is completely out in the open. He always wears her favours. He always rides on her behalf because, like we said, King Arthur is apart from it. That's such a fascinating, like... Um, just way of working in that mm-hmm. it's completely acceptable for the queen to have her knight. Yeah. Um, yeah, because in a way she's held up as such a... She's almost like the Virgin Mary in the sense that she's supposed to be, like we were saying, she's supposed to be that unearthly figure that it wouldn't be... In the same way, it wouldn't be weird for a knight to ride under the, the shield of Our Lady... Um, yeah, but that it's obviously not supposed to go into a personal relationship in that kind of way because she's a figurehead. Um, so yeah, it was acceptable to have him be so openly for her in court. Yeah, and but, I think in some ways, all of the knights were supposed to be a bit like that. Yeah, in that, I'm just thinking back to some of the other books where the knights ride for the queen. Yeah, and yeah, there is that sense that she's. Like we said, there's a weird balance where he loves her because she's a real person, but even once he's in love with her, he puts her on a pedestal, and before she's supposed to be on a pedestal because she's the queen, um, and that it, in reality, she's a very... In in some ways, you would expect her to be a kind of unlikable character, but she is actually likable in all her impestuousness and her stubbornness and her need for attention that she's very real and because she's in in a weird way because she's real she's more forgivable yeah and I think it's interesting with both her and Elaine Mm -hmm. that you'd expect to feel a lot more sympathy sympathy for for Elaine and it goes back to the fact that she was the one who tricked him in the first place but I think it's it's so interesting this tension between like I said Lancelot fails because he he switches out the love of God for a lady and for love. And yeah, if you want to read that quote, because it's it's really, really interesting. Well, this knight's trouble from his childhood, which he never completely grew out of, was that for him, God was a real person. 
He was not an abstraction who punished you if you were wicked, or rewarded you if you were good, but a real person like Guinevere, or like Arthur, or like anybody else. Of course he felt that God was better than Guinevere or Arthur, but the point was that he was personal. Lancelot had a definite idea of what he looked like and how he felt, and he was somehow in love with this person. The ill-made knight was not involved in an eternal triangle. It was an eternal quadrangle, which is eternal as well as a quadrangle. He had not given up his mistress because he was afraid of being punished by some sort of holy bogey, but he had been confronted with two people whom he loved. The one was Arthur's queen, the other a wordless presence who had celebrated mass at the castle Carbonic. Unfortunately, as so happens in love affairs, the two objects of his affection were contradictory. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about this beforehand in that we talk so much about the need to have a personal relationship with Christ and with God. And clearly, even in reading that, there's a kind of an element of jealousy in me that like he could be as real as a person, that it's a quadrangle and not a triangle. But that the, the fault in that comes in where you just treat God like another person, maybe the best person, but just like another person and not the ultimate authority in your life. Yeah, like there's that eternal question of, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can sometimes get overly caught out in worrying whether we do. I think someone who has a really interesting take on this, and it is not the person you expect at all, is Tolkien. Um, so... I think in some ways I always find it interesting and it's not that there isn't any chivalric elements in The Lord of the Rings but I think sometimes people try to depict The Lord of the Rings as a, a medieval romance in the same way that like the King Arthur story is and it is 100% not because Tolkien wrote that because he felt that the Arthur myth and all of those myths around it were so distinctly French. Like we said, these all came from the French and they came into England through the Norman invasion. And so he was looking to, in The Lord of the Rings, to create a pre-Norman invasion mythos for England. And so he knew a lot about, and he rewrote another one of the great, I'm going to call it an Arthurian myth because it revolves around one of the Knights of the Round Table, Sir Gawain. Um, But he translated Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and he translated a couple of the other uh, medieval stories. So it's not that he was completely separate from them. The Lord of the Rings in some ways is distinguished from it and it's telling that you don't have the pictures of the you know the knights with the feathers in their in their armor and things like that the the armor that you see is very anglo-saxon it's pre-norman yeah like the idea Mm. of um aragon wearing plate armor is ridiculous yeah exactly and you only see it at the ceremony in in terms of the film you only see it at the ceremonial bit at the end which makes sense but um he wears a breastplate and i think that's it when they're going to mordor but yeah Yeah, they're a lot more vulnerable yeah they're in not, their battles. Yeah. And even the dwarves, who probably wear the most armour, are more like covered in fur. They're not glamorous. Yeah. In fact, they're more like the Bernardo Clairvaux description that we yeah. were talking about earlier. Um, but also, I think it's really interesting because the accusation levelled at Tolkien's writing is that he puts women on a pedestal. And we're definitely going to have a different podcast all about that. Um, but I will say it's also not completely without merit. It's not that people are completely misreading it and they don't get it at all. It's in a particular way. But that's actually the problem he has with chivalry. So this is in one of his letters. And he says, uh, The centre of romantic chivalry was not God, but imaginary deities, love and the lady. It still tends to make the lady a kind of guiding star or divinity of the old-fashioned his divinity equals the woman he loves, the object or reason of noble conduct. This is, of course, false, and at best, make-believe. The woman is another fallen human being with a soul in peril, but combined and harmonised with religion, it can be very noble. Then it produces what I suppose is still felt among those who retain even vestigial Christianity to be the highest ideal of love between man and woman. Yet I still think it has dangers. It is not wholly true, and it is not perfectly theocentric. It takes, or at any rate has in the past taken, the young man's eye off women as they are, as companion in shipwreck, not guiding stars. One result is for observation of the actual to make the young man turn cynical, to forget their desires, needs, and temptations, 
It inculcates exaggerated notions of true love as a fire from without, a permanent exaltation, unrelated to age, childbearing and plain life, and unrelated to will and purpose. One result of this is to make young folk look for a love that will keep them always nice and warm in a cold world, without any effort of theirs, and the incurable romantic to go on looking even in the squalor of the divorce courts. That's fascinating. I think it's really interesting, though, that Arwen is the even star. Yeah. Yeah, she is kind of the guiding star. Like I said, I think I would love to do a whole podcast on it because it is really complex. I personally think that Tolkien, if if you didn't think he understood women, like that paragraph alone should convince you. But it's interesting how that translates into his fiction and how he represents women in his fiction. Because he clearly does come from knowing and understanding women. But then he he has particular versions of that that he brings into his fiction. But we won't get too sidetracked. But I, I just think that, that it's really interesting that that take on chivalry comes from Tolkien and how he's so aware of uh, what the failings of it are and where Lancelot falls down, because that is exactly where Lancelot falls down. I think it almost it's telling that he's there he's talking about the woman becoming almost, yeah, the leader in terms of the morals. Yeah, and, um, and that Jenny is so fallen that you can't look to her for the morals. Although the one thing I will say is that, and it's funny because T.H. White sort of implies this in his writing, which is that in those days even adulterous love was better than the love we have now, that there was a purity to it as well. Like there's a beautiful passage when they're both like middle-aged and he's saying, you, can, you can't imagine Jenny as the beautiful young lady that she was. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're both they're both still loyal to each other. Yeah, yeah. There's this really interesting moment where I believe it's when Lancelot comes back from the quest for the Holy Grail and he sees Guinevere for the first time, and it says Guinevere had overdressed for the occasion. She had put on makeup which she did not need and put it on badly. She was forty-two, and it goes on. There's a whole there's a whole section on it, and it's really interesting because Lancelot like loves her through it. Um, when Lancelot saw her waiting for him at the table with Arthur beside her, the heart sack broke in his wame, and the love inside it ran about through his veins. It was his old love for a girl of twenty standing proudly by her throne with the present of captives about her. But now the same girl was standing in other surroundings, the surroundings of bad makeup and loud silks, by which she was trying to defy the invincible doom of human destiny. He saw her as the passionate spirit of innocent youth, now beleaguered by the trick which is played on youth, the trick of treachery in the body, which turns flesh into green bones. Her stupid finery was not vulgar to him, but touching. The girl was still there, still appealing from behind the breaking barricade of rouge. She had made the bravest protest. I will not be vanquished. Under the clumsy coquetry, the undignified clothes, there was a human cry for help. The young eyes were puzzled, saying, It is I inside here. What have they done to me? I will not submit. Some part of her spirit knew that the powder was making a guy of her, and hated it, and tried to hold her lover with her eyes alone. They said, Don't look at me here in the prison, and help me out. Another part said, I am not old. It is an illusion. I am beautifully made up. See, I will perform the movements of youth. I will defy the enormous army of age. They're talking of age. There's a beautiful quote at the very beginning when um, um, Guinevere and Lancelot are falling in love. And it explains it from Guinevere's point of view in that how she loved Arthur, but that he was old. He was 30 to her 22. <laughs> and at that age, that seemed like a mile of a distance. An ocean, yeah. yeah. Um, and how she loves him with everything but that romantic love. Mm-hmm. But I just, I find it fascinating and I find it so heartbreaking. There's that element coming back to the fact that, um, I think we didn't actually get to it where I was talking about Lancelot and his ability to perform miracles. Um, but he uh, he is at a tournament and someone gets really badly injured and all of the knights try to heal him. So there's like this big queue of knights and they all try to heal him and nobody is succeeding and they call on Lancelot to do it. And 
Lancelot is like pleading with Arthur, don't make me do this because you're going to, essentially you're going to show me up as not being the good knight everyone thinks I'm going to be. Because he knows that he's, he has the sin of adultery and he's saying like, please don't make me reveal this because if I can't heal him, everyone knows I have a secret sin. And everybody's expecting him to be able to heal him. So they've all been going up to try and heal him, but not like, not even worrying about failing. Yeah, because um, Lancelot's going like, to do it. Obviously, Lancelot's going to do it. I know. And yeah, he's this knight that was injured who came all the way to Arthur's court because somebody had told him that he would be healed if the best knight in the world put his hands on him. Yes. Like oh, and so Lancelot puts his hands on him and prays, and he prays to God, and God gives him this grace of performing a miracle. And then this quote is my favourite. It's, In the middle, quite forgotten, her lover was kneeling by himself, this lonely and motionless figure knew a secret that was hidden from the others. The miracle was that he had been allowed to do a miracle. And ever, says Mallory, Sir Lancelot wept as he had been a child that had been beaten. And so there's just this, that the miracle was being allowed to do the miracle. And I think it's such a beautiful way of looking at, like, not, I don't want to say sin because God is forgiving and we can go to confession and that there is redemption, but that the reality of putting a distance between yourself and God. And so I don't want to make the mistake of saying that like, when in reality, when we're in God's favour, things go right for us, we win our battles, nothing goes wrong for us. And that the people who win in battles are the ones with God on their side. That is not- I think almost this book tries to show that up in a little bit. Yeah, exactly. But that even in our brokenness, even when we know we've put ourselves at a distance from God, that he does give us the grace and that he does give us the ability to have grace work through us to perform good. And there is that, it it is a really clear elucidation of how God has that ability to enter into our brokenness and make it good. And I think C.S. Lewis has a lot on that of like how God allows evil so that he can work even a greater good through it. Yeah. Before we started this, we were talking about chivalry being a very biblical idea. Yeah. And that brought up the interesting concept of whether King David is both the epitome of chivalry and the example of its failure. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously the whole affair with Bathsheba. Yes. Um, but then it's from Bathsheba that King Solomon comes. Yeah. Which is always such a fascinating dichotomy. Yeah, it's, it's the working through. And I think in some ways from what I can read anyway, the best examples of chivalry are always the ones that are also broken. Absolutely. I think for me it's because it has that, and it's a very biblical paradox, of having to hold two natures within yourself, the nature of a fearless warrior and the nature of a gentle, kind and compassionate man, that those two things have to exist within each other. And because we're only human, it never works, but that doesn't make it less of an ideal. Yeah, I think that's where some of the other books which write about, like, knights in armour fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking particularly, um, there's a series by David Eddings. Yeah. um, And there's another one by Tamora Pierce, which is, like, magic and, like, Mm -hmm. fun battles and knights in armour. Yeah. Um, But there's always the good people and the bad people. Mm -hmm. And the good people are also knights and they're upholding this chivalry and the bad people are the ones who aren't upholding chivalry. Yeah. There's no good people making mistakes. Yeah. Or, whereas in this book, a lot of, like, the worst of people come from the mistakes of the good people. Yeah. And I think just to close out the point with the, like, the paradox that C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. Um, it's called. It's from an essay called The Necessity of Chivalry, which is in a book called On Present Concerns. And he says, The knight is a man of blood and iron, a man familiar with the sight of smashed faces and the ragged stumps of lobbed off limbs. He is also demure, almost maidenlike, guest in whole, a gentle, modest, unobtrusive man. He is not a compromise or a happy mean between ferocity and meekness. He is fierce to the nth and meek to the nth. The medieval ideal brought together two things which have no natural tendency to gravitate towards one another. It brought them together for that very reason. It taught humility and forbearance to the great warrior because everyone knew by experience how much he usually needed that lesson. It demanded valour of the urbane and modest man because everyone knew that he was as likely as not to be a milksop. Which, I mean, C.S. Lewis is always summing things up perfectly. Yeah. (laughs) Because there is that 
paradox and that tension and that ideal. Almost that when you're aiming for an ideal, when you fall short, you go way off the mark. Um, Are we going to read that quote? (laughs) Oh yeah, I will get that. And apologies, it's a little long, but it is incredible. What sort of picture do people have of Sir Lancelot from this end of time? Perhaps they only think of him as an ugly young man who was good at games. But he was more than this. He was a knight with a medieval respect for honour. There is a phrase which you sometimes come across in country districts even nowadays, which sums up a good deal of what he might have tried to say. Farmers use it in Ireland as a phrase or compliment saying, so-and-so has a word, he will do what he promised. Lancelot tried to have a word. He considered it, as the ignorant country people still consider it, to be the most valuable of possessions. But the curious thing was that, under the king post of keeping faith with himself and with others, he had a contradictory nature which was far from holy. His word was valuable to him not only because he was good, but also because he was bad. It is the bad people who need to have principles to restrain them. For one thing, he liked to hurt people. It was for the strange reason that he was cruel, that the fellow never killed a man who asked for mercy, or committed a cruel action which he could have prevented. One reason why he fell in love with Guinevere was because the first thing he had done was to hurt her. He might never have noticed her as a person if he had not seen the pain in her eyes. People have odd reasons for ending up as saints. A man who is not afflicted by ambitions of decency in his mind might simply have run away with his hero's wife, and then perhaps the tragedy of Arthur would never have happened. An ordinary fellow, who did not spend half his life torturing himself by trying to discover what was right so as to conquer his inclination towards what was wrong, might have cut the knot which brought their ruin. I think that's such a fascinating look. And I, I think... Good people trying to make bad decisions. Like, yeah. good people trying to make good decisions. And making bad and ones. making bad ones. And I think we read a lot of articles these days like, oh, where is chivalry gone? Where, like, why don't we bring chivalry back? But in some ways, to me, the idea that like giving up your seat for someone or holding a door, which are all lovely and wonderful things, like it only has the vaguest relation to what we're talking about here, which is this... It has almost nothing to do with what yeah, we're talking it's about. It's this like, completely integrated desire for the best that is in a complete paradox because in order to want the best, like you, like we quoted earlier, you almost have to have the pride of thinking you can achieve it. It's so fascinating. And I love that this story isn't just, oh, chivalry didn't exist and it's a fallen and broken concept and nobody could have achieved it. But it's also not saying that we should bring it back. This is the way we should be. This has no flaws. This has no bad consequences. This has no downsides to it. That it is this hugely complicated thing. Yeah, like what I found was fascinating is that we were talking about how chivalry does exist before King Arthur. Like, there's still the concept of chivalry. It's just a completely fallen and twisted concept. It's just a title to be bought or it's just, yeah. It's something to make somebody feel good about themselves. Yeah. Doesn't do anything else. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting. And there is this sense also that the better you try to be, the more that in the book maybe it's fate, but we as Catholics we might say the devil tries to interfere with that goal. Like we said, both Arthur and Lancelot are sort of tricked into... Lancelot is kind of tricked into a relationship because it's ongoing. Arthur is kind of tricked into essentially a one-night stand, but it does produce a son. And in both cases, they have such an important part in bringing their downfall. But it never just dismisses it. I think in, certainly in the first case with Arthur, it's mainly magic that like, oh, well, it was magic. They couldn't have done anything. And in one of the quotes earlier, we referred to Lancelot as the ill-made knight or the ill-fated knight, which is a name he gives himself. It was the knight Malfay, which either means, because he says it can mean I'm ugly because it means like badly made, or it could mean that I'm, I have caused hurt. But it can also mean like the unhappy, the unlucky, the star-crossed knight that he is working against fate, like he is coming up against a wall that he can't seem to get across. And it's really interesting, when I was studying Le Mordartaire in university, the word unhappy was like an entire class in itself. Because at that time, like, we still have it in terms of the words like happenstance, or even just to happen. It's a word that originally meant chance or fate, or, you know, this intervention of circumstances that were outside of your control. So if you were an unhappy that wasn't really something that came from within it was something that came from without unhappiness was happening to you yeah though I think the most heartbreaking bit of that is 
he gives himself that name mm-hmm. when he's in the cast with Elaine. Yes. And she doesn't get he says it and she kind of doesn't get it. And, and then she does. Yeah. It's and, so heartbreaking. Um because he's essentially calling himself unhappy as in unlucky by chance when he's with her. Yeah. And then the other part is that I think we're going to have to round this up soon, but I just want to circle back to Arthur, which is that Arthur is also unhappy because he tries to do this really noble thing and he completely falls short of the mark. Not necessarily because of himself, but because of the reality of human nature. Yeah, and on that kind of topic, and um, there's this quote of... Um... It's going through Arthur's family tree, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's talking about, like we said, how he got tricked into this relationship. And it's not just a relationship, it's actually with his aunt, is it? Yeah. No, his sister, actually. Sister, sorry. It is why Sir Thomas Mallory called his very long story The Death of Arthur, although nine-tenths of the story seem to be about knights jousting and quests for the Holy Grail and things of that sort. The narrative is a whole, and it deals with the reason why a young man came to grief at the end. It is the tragedy, the Aristotelian and comprehensive tragedy, of sin coming home to roost. That is why we have to take note of the parentage of Arthur's son Mordred, and to remember, when the time comes, that the king slept with his own sister. He did not know he was doing so, and perhaps it may have been due to her, but it seems, in tragedy, that innocence is not enough. And I think one of the most fascinating things about that little bit of it may have been due to her is she used witchcraft to trick him into it. Yeah. Like there's a whole bit about this weird bit of um, magic. magic that um, she used against him, but that's not blamed for his action. Mm-hmm. Like, the magic does have an impact on the story, Yeah. but he is still responsible for his actions, um, which I think is such a fascinating twist that so many of us look for the out yeah that anyone else could have gone oh but this and like yeah even when fate or evil or even chance interferes in your life even when Lancelot is the unhappy ill-fated knight yeah that there is this complicitness in it as well and there is like I said there is that sense that as soon as you're aiming for a really high ideal that the way you fall short is so much worse yeah it's like I've uh sister friend of mine was talking about how the higher up the ladder you go towards holiness the bigger the drop is when you fall yeah and, and I how think... some of like the most evil co- people can be- have been on the road to holiness yeah um i think like, like even i don't this is probably way too big a topic to get mentioned but just even we're seeing this within the abuses of the church yeah and that the priests who were hiding it and like even aside from the priests who were doing the abuse that the people who were hiding it were in defense of this ideal of the church which again is a false god or again is a false aim just to to conclude the fate we'll just recap how arthur fails because it his civilization has this kind of tendency towards ruin which is incredible so he says merlin he said approved of the round table evidently it was a good thing at the time it must have been a step now we must think of making the next one guinevere said I don't see what is wrong with the round table just because the Orkney faction chooses to get murderous. I was explaining to Lance, the idea of our table was that right was the most important thing, not might. Unfortunately, we have tried to establish right by might, and you can't do that. I don't see why you can't do it. I tried to dig a channel for might so that it would flow usefully. The idea was that all the people who enjoyed fighting should be headed off so that they fought for justice, and I hoped this would solve the problem. It has not. Why not? Simply because we have got justice. We have achieved what we were fighting for, and now we still have the fighters on our hands. Don't you see what has happened? We have run out of things to fight for, so all the fighters of the table are going to rot. Look at Gawain and his brothers. While there were still giants and dragons and wicked knights of the old brigade, we could keep them occupied. We could keep them in order. Now that the ends have been achieved, there is nothing more for them to use their might on. So they use it on Pelinor and Lamorak and my sister. God be good to them. The first sign of the fester was when our chivalry turned to games mania. All that nonsense about who had the best tilting average and so forth. This is the second sign, when murder begins. That is why I say that dear Merlin would want me to start another thinking now, if only he were here to help. It is something like idleness and luxury unmanning us. The strings have gone slack and out of tune. 
No, it is not that at all. It is simply that I have kept a rod and pickle for my own back. I ought to have rooted out might altogether, instead of trying to adapt it, though I don't know how the rooting out could have been done. Now the might is left with nothing to use it on, so it is working wicked channels for itself. You ought to punish it, said Lancelot. When Sir Bedivere killed his wife, you made him carry her head to the Pope. You ought to send Gawain to the Pope now. The king opened his hand and looked up for the first time. I am going to send you all to the Pope, he said. What? Not exactly to the Pope, you see. The trouble is, as I see it, that we have used up the worldly objects for our might, so there is nothing left but the spiritual ones. I was thinking about this all night. If I can't keep my fighters from wickedness by matching them against the world because they have used up the world, then I must match them against the spirit. And that's the beginning of the quest for the Holy Grail. Yeah. But even that, he has this concern, like he says, that once you achieve perfection and you need perfection to reach the Holy Grail, that you vanish. And so when they come back, there's loads of them missing. Either they they were yeah. killed or that they... Half the knights never came back and they were the best half. Yes. And so then he's left with the worst of them to work with. Yeah. And so the, what I found fascinating about that particular quote there is that when Lancelot says you should send Gwen to the Pope, mm-hmm. and I was just thinking, well, if he had sent the entire Orkney faction off to the Pope as penance, <laughs> he may have been better off. But he's always thinking of the fullness of justice, so he doesn't want to single out those people in particular. Yeah, except that he's always afraid to punish that particular faction. Because he was the one who conquered them. Yeah. And that was it goes back to that using might to ensure right in the beginning and that seed of like what he says that I should have rooted out might but yeah. it's really really interesting I think, we- I think we're gonna have to talk about Arthur and his state another time yes we're well out of time yes we're definitely out of time but I hope that was an interesting look at chivalry and the ways that it works its way through the Once and Future King and I would I know it's a kind of difficult book but I would recommend everyone to read it particularly if they want to really explore what it means to try to be a good person, what it means to fail to be a good person, and what it means to hold the contention of being both a good person and making continual bad decisions. Because I think that's all of our lives, that we try to be good people, and yet we have these habits of sin, and yet we put ourselves at this distance to God. Yeah, and what I will say on that to help people read it is I really struggled in the like last third because I didn't see how it could possibly end happily. That's but it, it <laughs> ends happier than you think it will. Yeah, there is a form of redemption yeah. in it. It's a fascinating book and I really, really love it. Um, I'm going to shout out my friend Mark, who I don't think is listening, but he, he was the one who twisted my arm to read it and he was totally right. It's amazing. And so we're just going to conclude really quickly. What is the thing you're enjoying at the moment? Well, since I finished that, I went on to a run of rereading Georgia Dares. Yeah. And she's this novelist, probably from nearly the same era, like 1940s, where but she's write, writing looking back at the Regency period of Jane Austen. Yeah. And they're just like fun, frivolous books of the kind of upper class. They're exactly what they would have called trashy novels in ter- like at, yeah. in the Regency period. Yeah. But they're just really light-hearted and her character development is really good. And they also comply with the morals of the time. Yeah. I find, like, That's often the problem with them when they're anachronistic yeah. where you're like, but nobody would have done that at the time. Like, it just wouldn't have been allowed. Yeah, like, yeah. they're not... Well, they're not scandalous yes. to start with, which is always appreciated. Um, but they're also because she's looking back at the time they're like they, she gives you descriptions of the clothes and doesn't expect you to necessarily know what type of carriage it is automatically mm-hmm. but she might give you like a vague description that will give you an idea of what they're doing without taking you out of the world yeah and she uses all sorts of slang and that's very cool yeah it's they're just a lot of fun i know i've been meaning to get to them but we'll see i've got a lot of things that i've been meaning to get to (laughs) Mm -hmm. for me i got a new copy of my dappled things journal subscription so dappled things is a catholic journal which has mainly poetry short fiction and some reflective non-fiction and some book reviews as well and so uh, they're pretty great I would recommend them Uh, they are for a year they take a little while to come to me I have the digital subscription and the physical subscription and they're coming from America so I always get the digital subscription about like three or four weeks before I get the actual copy so I finally have my actual copy and they 
also include actually they do a lot of artwork so for each edition they have a particular artist that they're showcasing the work of. I find it really uplifting to see liturgical and some of it's less liturgical but like most of it's with a Catholic bent like liturgical art that is new and modern but also has a, a heritage in older traditions so I would recommend Dapple Things magazine. As usual, we'll remind everyone if you can rate, subscribe and give us reviews, all of those great things. We really, really appreciate it. And we just want to thank all of our listeners because we've got more than I certainly expected at this stage. So thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll just say goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.